Hello everyone, welcome back to Wake Up Call. It is great to talk to you again. Today we have another very interesting episode ready for you. We're talking with a very special guest. His name is Dan Vehemans. He is the program director of the Bachelor Security Studies and researcher at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs in the University of Leiden. His research includes studies on the lives and preparatory processes of foreign fighters, the role of families in radicalization, and the detention and reintegration of jihadist extremist offenders. He is also a research fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague. Today we will be talking about radicalization, indoctrination, brainwashing, and how all of these things appear in our society, how regular people being brainwashed perhaps differs from terrorism brainwashing, and how all of these things can be solved. Stay tuned for the episode and we hope you like it. Thank you so much, Dr. Vegemans, for uh, coming on the show. So our first question is basically, in your own words, um, how would you describe the work that you do? Start off easy, right? Um, so I'm a, um, a researcher in the field, and I'm starting to um, to broaden up a bit. But uh, I'm I'm a philosopher by training and a sociologist. So much of the uh, work I do starts in as philosophers do in wonder. And um, the thing I wonder about most is uh, contemporary security issues. So things that happen in our contemporary world in our modern societies which somehow bring uh, security and safety questions and dilemmas uh, to the front uh, and most of the thing and most of the work I've been doing in relation to that has been on the field of, uh, of terrorism and, and radicalization and um, my research is mostly characterized by a qualitative approach so I do a lot of interviewing, uh, talking to people who we fear um, as a society, or at the same time we're fascinated by. So it's only a couple of people, it's a small portion of society, but still they're spectacular. So that's what um, I try to do and, uh, and see if um, how, what, what, the very basic question, so who are they and, uh, and what do they do, uh, has been a very guiding question in most of my work. Um, and um, so related to radicalization and terrorism, that's basically what I do. Yeah, you mentioned that your sphere of research is definitely very relevant today. And I feel like in order for us to have a good conversation, we have to set some terms that we're talking about. Because the, the terms radicalization, indoctrination seem to be really thrown around a lot. So maybe you could explain briefly what is the difference between, for example, brainwashing, radicalization and indoctrination? Um, well, as many, uh, as, as many academic debates stay, start, and that's also for this, I'm sorry uh, to, to throw that in uh, as early as, as this now already. Um, we, all of them are contested concepts and probably every researcher will put uh, a different definition forward. Um, so exactly brainwashing, indoctrination, radicalization, extremism, all these kind of radicalism, terrorism, all these words make a mixture of, um, of, of concepts that are easily misunderstood and also therefore debates often go wrong. And um, so, so, yeah, for, for me, I have for a long time, and I think with me, many other scholars in the field as well have, have thought the 
especially in the early days, radicalization as a concept is, is quite new, right? We, we don't use that for, 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 for many centuries or decades. So it's something we started doing after 9-11, uh, pretty much. And I hate the term uh, radicalization. And at first, I, I, that was also a reason for, for me and my colleagues to, to find for other ways to describe the process, because that's how it came to be used as the process that leads an individual in the direction of extremism or, or terrorism. So people starting to become, the idea was that when people become more radical, so their worldviews start, start to become more radical and extreme, then at some point they come to the point or might come to the point uh, that they become terrorists. Um, the whole link with the word radicalism, um, so that idea of extreme ideologies or viewpoints or, or systems of thought, is inherently problematic because there are many individuals, also the people I spoke to, who are not per se very radical in their views. Well, they are in their actions at some point, especially those who make it to the terrorism phase. Um, but the idea that violent thoughts and, and, and radical thoughts uh, and ideas leads to the potential of violence is, is, is misunderstood and that's, that, that it's not necessarily so. So, so that's also why the, the, the concept of radicalization in itself is problematic. However, over time it became so um, well integrated in our public discourse as a as a way of speaking to the, the phase that happened to terrorists or extremists, so those that use violence um, to achieve certain political goals or to change the system, um, that, that, that radicalization is about that phase. So it's, just, so it's not necessarily anymore about the ideological uh, thoughts or, or beliefs they have um, or the getting more extreme, but it's more about them getting on the on the pathway towards terrorism that's where how radicalization starts to be used more and more um i i can well i can i can relate to it but still it's an uncomfortable term because i i really think that there's not a, a direct relationship between having extremist thoughts and doing extremist things or terrorist things um yeah and brainwashing that's something also that happens from the outside right so people getting brainwashed and that's something that that parents or societies or, or, or terrorist or extremist groups, that they are sects or cults, that they start to try and change your whole belief system. And then at some point that you're, you fit in right into the uh, system of, uh, of a particular group um, and that your, your ideas align with them. Um, so, but radicalization as such um, can also be just a, a very individual process always in relation with a particular social context um, but it's not necessarily so that people are victims of brainwashing when they become terrorists or when they become extremists right people are have agency too they do things themselves as well and that's i think with for me that's a problematic term with for example indoctrination or brainwashing that when you say that people have been brainwashed or they have been indoctrinated with a particular thought, well, surely propaganda and all kinds of things happen and they surely have to have their, can have their effect. Um, I think it takes away the agency of the individual also goes through the, the whole process. So that's, for me, radicalization is a problematic term, but it's I, maybe the best we have. So I want to jump back to something really interesting that you that you said that I, I never properly thought about before, and that's 
the, the phrase that, that violent thoughts or radical thoughts don't often lead to violence. Um, and just intuitively for me, that seems like a little bit of a weird phrase, something that I would not thought. Yeah, like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that, that, that that's the case at all. Um, can you explain what actually does lead to radicalization if it's not these violent or radical thoughts? Or sorry, not, let me rephrase, not radicalization, um, extremist action. Um, yeah, so, so well, I wouldn't say often, but I, 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 there are definitely cases in which people um, are not very um, deeply involved in the... Um, in, in extremist ideologies uh, when they, for example, join a terrorist group. And that is something which sounds very uh, strange, right? It's that, that you think that when, when you do something that extreme, become member of a terrorist organization or extremist group, whether it's right-wing, jihadi, or, or whatever group it is, left-wing, and that you then claim that not every, uh, every person who ends up within extremist networks is necessarily uh, a radical or has radical thoughts and that is um, so i realize that but still there are and, and there are i think when you want to understand why people join um, these networks or these groups then you have to look at different domains of of life so and you see that individuals often follow different pathways into these acts or these groups and one of them can be definitely ideology. Ideology is, is very important in radicalization processes um, for many. Um, it helps to explain and understand the world people live in, the injustices that are being uh, carried out, and also it explains people uh, patterns of action which they need to do in order to, to, to right the wrongs in society. Um, so if you if people join extremist networks, ideologies definitely are important. However, there are also individuals who, who are very, um, who are dummies in, uh, in the sense of, uh, of ideological understanding of actually what they are up, what they're doing, and they are much more attracted or involved, get more involved into particular groups because of other um, uh, push or pull factors in, uh, in extremist networks. For example, social networks or social identity forming or um, practical advantages of particular groups. I've seen also in, in the research I did on foreign fighters, people who were not uh, definitely uh, ideological trained individuals who were actually um, uh, arrested and uh, that, they, that they didn't even know the basics of the religion they were claiming to, uh, to support. Um, with their uh, with their um, joining of, uh, of of extremist networks, but they they went there for very other reasons, and um, that goes for for individuals. For example, you also and it it, it doesn't have to be that people ha don't have a, 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 a religious or, or ideological system in which they look at the world. That people always have that, but if you want to point at a particular factor that inspired them to do particular things then for many people, it's not ideology uh, in isolation, or it's, it's, if, for some, it's even not even based on ideological grounds. But there are, for example, social factors, friends who you got involved with, or it's a way of uh, dealing with practical uh, circumstances, what makes people uh, 
what leads people to make more extreme choices than they would have done otherwise. For example, I've met uh, a girl who uh, traveled to um, uh, to the Caliphate, to, uh, to ISIS territory. And a very important reason for her to do so is that she met this guy online. She fell in love with this boy but uh, who was already there, but also she was um, uh, subject, being subjected to abuse at their home situation. So also for her, the, the road to, to ISIS territory, to ISIS, was very much inspired also by uh, other factors than ideology or than, than extremist uh, ideas. And this, the same goes for right-wing extremists. There are stories in right-wing uh, circles where people are there because it's also, and it's this also might sound weird, that it's also fun to be part of such a group, right? It gives you a social network, it gives you friends, it gives you all sorts of exciting adventures, activities, it gives you protection from outside world. So there are many benefits to extremist groups. However, in, in public, but also in, in academic debate, we still often talk about that radical Part, right about the thoughts and the ideas and the ideologies these people have and although they're important in justifying their their actions and in uh, inspiring people to do the same it's definitely not the only source why people become terrorists so would you say that it's 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 fair to say that like you you've you've seen any sort of pattern in the way that extremists recruit and the way that people join these networks um, for example, like just something that in my non-expert opinion seems to make sense is that although ISIS and the KKK are like fundamentally like at odds with each other, the ways in and in which they sort of harness propaganda and and like identity politics and, and nationalism is, is very similar in in terms of attracting a similar like demographic of, of, of young men of a particular religion or race. Um, and like you said, ideology may have little to do with it, but are there any common tactics that you see extremist groups from all across the ideological spectrum, all across the world, um, use to recruit new members? Um, yeah, so, so I think, um, so propaganda also in itself doesn't doesn't exist in in some kind of vacuum right so it's always about real stuff and it's it's also about it's not just about real stuff but it's also about um sharing a, a message that is understandable right and it's it's about often about black and white right so so in terms of there's no gray color in between its extremes which you which you which you tell in your story um, and it highlights um, the basic thoughts and ideas for for these groups and therefore ideology it's not that it doesn't matter right it's, or it hardly matters it really matters because it is exactly the frame which you want people to um, to become part of um, when they join a group or a network however it's not a driving factor in itself but uh, or not for everyone at least um, but it is sharing propaganda does exactly i think sharing this this narrative right so it is about sharing what the world looks like where people are are in and it helps them understand the the wrongs and the grievances they're uh, they're being done right so that they're the, the, it helps them understand that from uh, a, a right-wing extremist perspective it helps them understand that um that that 
multicultural societies don't work because there's much more violence and it's much better. So it, it is this message that's being shared. And from, from jihadi uh, networks, it's about uh, uh, disbelief and it's about um, uh, discrimination. It's about, so, so it is about understanding the injustices of society or injustices of other societies as well. Um, and it's also about this, this, this propaganda message. It's, it's about that injustices. It's about also uh, providing ways of, of better worlds or things that can be done or how the world could look like. So also a way forward and what could be done. Um, but I think what modern propaganda characterizes is that it's beyond only the ideological, ideological message of, uh, of these groups. So, um, as, as I always, as, as I said, so there are particularly three dimensions of, of why people become attracted or become motivated to join extremist groups. And one of them is definitely ideology, but the two others are also important. So it's also about the social identity and the powerful group you're going to belong to. And it's also about the practical advantages and the fun life you'll have in that, within that group or part of that group. So it's about providing an image propaganda that covers all these aspects so it show it shares the ideolo ideological message it shares the social aspects of of becoming part of the group and it show it, sh it shares the uh, the practical advantages and that's what you've seen and that's i think also in the last years how propaganda has changed in the past especially when you look at the old al-qaeda propaganda videos it was just a guy and most of the time it was bin laden talking these very long ideological hardcore talks which nobody understood and it was all in Arabic, in Arabic so people half of the world didn't really understand what was being said and I think modern day propaganda messages are much more dynamic they're they're quicker uh, and they're open to a much larger audience than this small hardcore present in every society and that is because it's not just only about ide ideology it's also about social identity and it's also uh, about practical uh, advantages yeah so you meant we talked about how basically people join these organizations and the reasons why they do so now i want to talk a bit more about the solutions to radicalization because it's quite hard to imagine, you know, the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys as far-right groups in the U.S. sort of becoming more moderate or changing their beliefs. But you did mention that it is possible with individual agency to sort of shift away from extreme beliefs without needing to be deprogrammed. So can you explain a bit more how can this happen? Do you, like, you need to have certain personality traits? Are there certain outside pushes that the state can use to help people? Um, how does this happen? Um, yeah, so, so the good thing is that most people at some point, uh, even when they become more and more extreme in their thoughts and their behaviors, uh, most of them do not join extremist groups, actually. And when people do, most of them actually at some point get out of it. So, so that's the good news. Um, and there's, uh, so, so um, it's definitely possible for people to, to get out. Um, and um, there, there are a couple of things that might hinder people from actually doing so. So I think that uh, if you look at radicalization processes, then so the pathways towards extremist groups and towards terrorism. Um, 
then you have these different reasons why people become involved, but there's also different reasons why people might want to quit um, because they get disillusioned with the ideology, right? So the, the, the story that they have been told actually don't seem to really work in practice or that the social group they now are part of, uh, the, 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 whether it's ISIS or, or right-wing extremist groups or a neo-Nazi group, um, that they in practice turn out not to be the people you want to be involved with because they're unkind or you're disappointed in, oh, uh, you're disappointed in how they, they operate. Um, so uh, that you, you have experienced certain grievances as being part of that group. So that might also be a reason why people want to quit. Um, and it might also be that you, for example, have very practical reasons, again, to get out, right? It might be a reason for people to get in, but it might also be a reason to get out. You want to have a normal life. You want to have a career. You want to meet, you want to have a family. All these kinds of stuff are much more difficult when you're part of uh, extremist groups. So the reason, um, so all these, these these reasons why people get involved might also be reasons why people want to get out. And then the problem is only is that some of them might start doubting it, but have encountered certain barriers or, or, or obstacles, which despite their, their, their increasing uh, wish to, to get out, might still keep them in. Um, so these are so-called barriers to, to, to disengagement. Um, so for example, uh, somebody might want to uh, leave the group for whatever reason, however, ideology again might prevent people from actually leaving uh, because they'll be um, well they believe still or they might still believe that they'll end up in hell for that so it might still be a reason why people despite their doubts stay in it might also be that they might fear the group right so that they they want to leave but what are the consequences from a very practical perspective uh, will there be re repercussions or do, they, do you need to worry about your own safety? Um, so that might also still keep people in. Or people fear stigmatization so that people um, might want to leave but feel that they will never have a normal career because they'll be stigmatized by, this, by, by society because they'll always see them as an ex-terrorist. So all these different or a very maybe as a, as a last example, your, all your friends are still there. Right, so you might want to leave, and you might want to. You might feel you doubt the ideology, or you doubt the practical life and stuff circumstances, um, but you'll still end up staying with the group because your friends are there. You don't really believe still the uh, the 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 goals of the organization, and you don't really believe in the tactics either. But your friends or your lover is still in the group, and that means that you'll probably stay in as well. So, so this whole process of this whole matrix of why people end up there, why people might doubt, but also why people uh, might still stay in despite their doubt. Um, that is something where governments or organizations can actually do something. So um, the first thing is that if you want to get people out, uh, they have to, there must be a reason for them to do so themselves. So there's always has to be this personal motivation for people to wanna quit or to wanna uh, get, get out. Uh, and if you find that reason, then there's ways for governments to, to deal with the barriers people might encounter when actually trying to get out. So if a reason, if people want to leave an organization but, but um, 
feel that they'll be subject to societal stigmatization because they have this big uh, swastika tattoo in their neck. Well, one thing that organizations do uh, in the US as well is that they help getting rid of the, these tattoos just to make sure that people actually are, are able to reintegrate into society again, that this whole idea of stigmatization tones well, that the risk becomes lower. Or when people um, doubt whether they actually can leave because they'll end up in hell, then there might be um, a, a religious uh, or an ideological expert, a religious figure, who can actually talk to you and, and um, explain that there are other interpretations where this not, might, might not be the case. Or when there is uh, a security threat, then the police might might be involved in order to guarantee protection. So there is, I think the role of governments is not per se in stimulating people in the first instance of uh, getting out um, terrorist groups, but it's mainly about getting rid of those barriers, which might keep people in um, despite their doubts. So in reshaping this, I think that there's a sort of important role to be played by societal attitudes and, and, the, and the way that people think about extremists. For example, in Canada, like Omar Khadr, who is a Canadian citizen, um, recently got a whole bunch of money because he was detained at Guantanamo Bay and he was a child and the Canadian government didn't come in to like protect his rights or whatever. But a lot of the Canadian public, when they see a guy like Omar Khadr, you know, who's, who's, who's been an extremist, um, and was uh, fighting in Afghanistan despite being a Canadian citizen, they sort of see that and are, are, are left like uh, with a sense of, of disgust or, 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 or a bad feeling about the fact that, okay, this guy's a former extremist and he gets to live a good life and the government's helping him out. Um, of course, even though the case is much more complicated than that, this the sort of like feeling that society has towards members that have joined extremist groups and committed crimes as part of extremist groups is a feeling of of of, of vengeance of, of of hatred of you know these people are, are evil they're they're the scum of society how do we reconcile that with the fact that yes they've committed these crimes and yes they're coming back yes they've been in like you know they've been a part of these groups that have committed massive harm to the country, massive harm to our citizens. But at the same time, the only solution is with them as citizens of the country to bring them back to the country. How do, how do societal attitudes play a role in rehabilitation? Um, yeah, so, so I think there are multiple levels to your, your question, which I think is, uh, is an interesting one. Um, there are, so on the one hand, it tells us something about our relationship to, 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 to risk, right? And it, it is something that as a society, we are uh, very occupied with, with risks posed by, by technologies, but also by, by individuals and, and also the preventing of those risks from actually materializing, from actually that something really goes wrong. So we're not very good anymore um, for different reasons. Uh, to deal with the fact that uh, that certain things are well can always happen right that there's always a danger to to certain things um, for example to terrorism there, there's always a chance of of terrorism to occur that's also the scary part and that's also the powerful part of terrorism 
um, that it might always happen and it might always uh, that it keeps us occupied in that sense and um, the same goes, of course, for recidivism, right? Is if somebody, uh, whether or not he was, uh, he or she was found guilty, and um, but the fact that somebody has been uh, linked to something extreme as terrorism, that brings about feelings of anxiety because there's always a risk of of people committing uh, such crimes again, or or that they might at the end still would commit the crimes. So. I think it says it tells us something about how we relate to risks and how we are willing to accept the fact that things can go wrong, um, and and it and it goes beyond the idea of terrorists. It is also related to other high risk offenders, right, or high profile offenders, as I th I called it in my own work. So there are, um, I think, the societal outrage and fear of particular prisoners or, or, or people who have been incarcerated. Um, is is um, interesting itself to to when looking at their public profile, and I think terrorism are definitely one group which 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 create fear and and, and anger, but also uh, the same goes for pedophiles or, or people who have been uh, in sexual uh, uh, cases of sexual assault and and, uh, and that kind of uh, of, of stuff, or or murderers who have had a very public case. Um, so all these figures, they create, um, uh, they, they create these societal responses. And um, that is something that I think is just a fact. And, and, and I've seen several cases where prisoners or terrorists were released from prison and where uh, uh, their neighborhood where they would end up living started protesting, started doing petitions, like we don't want this person to live here. Um, and the same goes with people with a uh, uh, with a different high profile case. Um, so that's the, that. So it is a fact, and it, it definitely stigmatization is definitely problematic if you want to reintegrate people uh, because it is about people trying to find their way in a different kind of life away from 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 extremism or from from crime. Um, but then there has to be an option actually to be part of that life. And then with this, uh, you would expect that with this kind of stigmatization that becomes problematic. Um, and the good thing is that that's for many people, it's not the case. So, so the case you mentioned of, 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 of Kader is, is one extreme case, right? It has been a, a case where world, there has been attention worldwide to this particular case, and the same goes to particular cases on the national level, also in particular foreign fighters who joined ISIS, they made the news, they have been on television. For them, it's a different story, but there are also many individuals who are still quite anonymous, uh, and they are still it's, they're, it's, it's quite possible, actually, that society doesn't really care about these people. Well, actually, if you're going to make it explicit and tell them, like, oh, you know who lives next door, yeah, that's a terrorist, and I would be worried. Yeah, then people would be, uh, definitely would respond. But in most cases, if you deal with these cases in, in discretion and, and in, in, a, in, in a particular way, then it's actually quite well... Um, uh, well, it's an option to actually to, to reintegrate them quite anonymously and quite well. And, and I've seen cases, for example, where, where local governments were worried about the release of a particular prisoners, a prisoner, and they were uh, monitoring the neighborhood where he would go and live for, uh, for, for weeks. And the neighborhood still, well, doesn't really 
didn't really bother, although everyone knew that this person was going to, to live there again. Uh, and the, one of the main reasons was is that most people actually knew the guy in the environment. And, and although that he committed a terrorist attack, people knew what he was, was about and um, that actually he uh, distanced himself from his previous accent. So there wasn't a lot of uh, societal outrage on a local sphere. And that's in the end, that's the place where people have to live. So on a national level and on a societal level, people are still very worried about these high profile cases and off and, and sometimes rightly so, right? Some people who, who yeah, it might be scary, um, but in, in not every local community is, is uh, turned upside down when uh, somebody from, uh, from an extremist background is reintegrated. So I think in recent years, we've seen the rise of, of these lone wolf terrorist attacks. And the idea that groups like ISIS are no longer about a centralized hierarchical organization, but rather some ideology that penetrates deeper than that, a, a way of radicalizing um, mostly young men into committing terrorist acts in name of this group uh, or state that they'd like to have that's that's very far away. Like a lot of these recent terrorist attacks in America have, have come with um, a terrorist like live streaming or like, you know, creating a video, pledging allegiance to ISIS while committing an act in America without any known contact to any centralized um, extremist hub or network or anything like that. They just have seen the content that this group has put out and have decided, okay, I'm going to be a part of it. And the group even asked them like, you know, like just pledge allegiance to us when you commit an act. It doesn't matter if you have anything to do with us or have formally been integrated into our organization in any way. I think that this like to me just leaves me thinking a lot about like the security state and surveillance and things like that. And I just, in my head, I just can't figure out how we balance the rise of lone wolves and our, our own personal freedoms. Cause on, on, on one level, it seems like we have to like be quite invasive in people's, you know, message data and, and like seeing which websites they're accessing and who they've been in communication with in order to stop these attacks from happening and saving lives. But on the other hand, giving the government the power to do so opens up a whole other can of worms um, related to state surveillance. How do you feel the best way to, to balance these two things um, is? Well, I think you sketched the dilemma perfectly <laughs> because this is what it is, right? It's about balancing. And um, um, so it is, it is about um, well, there are a couple of things, a couple of thoughts, and a couple, uh, a couple of ideas. Uh, it's definitely about finding a balance between. I think every investigation should always start with: Are there? What's the least intrusive way of doing an investigation? Uh, and do we really need to, um, well, get all the material and all the. Um, the, the, the technologies out to, to, to surveil and to monitor this person, right? And I think um, that, that should always be the starting question. Uh, and and um, there should be enough oversight by independent organizations or, or organizations tasked with actually monitoring whether this has actually been done, right? Whether this protocol has been followed. Um, and and it's also part of, of public discourse and, and, and of, of all different 
and also of academics um, to also um, debunk myths which might be used to justify particular uh, extreme measures to to deal with um, particular threats. So the first thing I think should always be clear is that there will never be a solution to make the world perfectly safe. And if you if there would be a solution, that it would be very suboptimal. So there will always, so it's our task, I think, as as uh, as academics, as politicians, as policymakers, to constantly keep this message out there that that you'll never be completely safe, and that's okay too, because that's what life is about. And um, so you can actually, uh, and for every uh, thing you come up with, uh, people who want to do wrong, they'll they'll find a way. It's very easy to commit a terrorist attack, um, and you can't surveil and we have seen that over the last uh, years with these small scale individual attacks as you said where just people go out on the street and start stabbing people these are very scary thoughts uh, but they're it, well many of them wouldn't have been able to prevent when you would have had access to all the data out there in the world this would all this could always happen um and then there's the other thought is that you say, well, one of the reasons I think, or one of the things that has scared us a lot and it has started also with, uh, well, you've, you've you had a couple of attacks also in the US, but also in Norway with Anders Bering Breivik, um, where individuals and a couple of incel attacks as well. Uh, so um, individuals who radicalized pretty much in, in, well, seem to radicalize or seem to become more extreme in isolation. Uh, and then suddenly, boom! They were there, and there was this there was this huge attack with a lot of casualties. Um, when you look closer, um, they were all branded uh, lone wolves, and, and and well, how could that be done? Because lone wolves are not in contact, and we can't survey them, and we can't find them; they're everywhere. And that that kind of narrative started to emerge. And then when you look closer at these cases, you'll see that there there's always a community. Uh, which they are part of, and 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 it's not always a physical community. We're still often thinking, right, about that. Oh, you can't be, well, you you can't be connected to people when it's not in the in the physical world. But all these individuals were in some way connected to to others who were like-minded or want to be connected um, in the digital world. So so many incels, and I studied them myself as well, they, they, they have fora uh, where they are uh, in contact with each other. And some of them have announced uh, attacks over the web. Uh, Breivik has been very active on public fora and also in the physical world in uh, trying to, uh, to buy all sorts of good uh, fertilizer from which a bomb could be made. So there'll always be traces of individuals and their social networks, even when they appear to operate on their own. Um, so it's also another myth, I think, that the myth of lone wolves, it's something um, we should debunk because it's a very, very one-dimensional idea of that, that, that that's a thing. Uh, well, in many cases, it's not the most appropriate way to describe these cases. And it's also then the solutions we will propose based on this image will be the wrong ones because they, well, the idea that they, that there's nothing, um, well, to be, to be investigated in the physical world, it's just, it's not true. And the same, it goes that they, um, that there have only been a couple of real lone wolves and maybe the person coming closest um 
has has died a long time ago. Um, so yeah, uh, so that will be the Unabomber, and um, so yeah, I think so. So that would so so yeah, that would be my first ideas. Thank you so much. I think this is a good time to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much for your ideas and input and coming on the show. It was definitely very interesting to hear your research and uh, see you again maybe soon.